Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Uh, we missed you all last week. I had a chance to go speak at the church I served at as youth pastor for five years. Uh, they are celebrating their 200th anniversary. Some of y'all may remember when they first planted that church, but uh, I came a little later and uh, uh, got to serve there for five years. And uh, uh, first time I met the uh, pulpit committee was when I was preaching revival there uh, over seven years ago, almost eight years now. And uh, that church is very special to us. And each month they're celebrating their 200th anniversary by featuring a speaker or someone who's come through there. And I was April's guest. So it was a real blessing to see some of our former students. You've met some of them. You hired one of them years ago. Dustin Duvall was a student of mine at Greenup. And uh, it is just uh, the best part of youth ministry is to see them as adults doing well. Um, and some of their kids are in high school. Um, I'm going to leave that comment right there and just move on. So uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, we want to look at one verse. We'll start a new series, Lord willing, next week. But I thought we'd just look at one verse, that if there's a verse in the Bible that you should make sure is highlighted in your Bible, that you can memorize and turn to regularly, I think certainly this stands as it. Page 1004 UP Bibles, if you will stand with me, reverence for God's Word. You may already have it memorized. Romans 8, verse 1, Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet, our entire being, that we would be submissive to your word, obedient to Christ, transformed by the gospel. May we believe what you say is true because it is true. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I, I do have a bit of a theory, and maybe after the services, you, you can let me know if you, if you think my theory has some merit to it or not. But I have a sort of theory that as an old millennial, which means I, I'm technically in the millennial camp, but I, I, I'm on the old side, so um, I, I, I'm sympathetic with some of your Gen, Gen Xers here. And, and uh, so, so I've noticed something that, Let's just say, for sake of simplicity, Gen X and older uh, grew up in a society to where the love of God, everyone could believe quite easily. It was the judgment of God that was difficult to believe. Love of God came easy, judgment of God, and the holiness of God, not as much. I do think with, uh, with younger generations that that either has started to flip or perhaps it has flipped completely. The judgment of God, or just judgment in general, is easy to believe. After all, we, we are a very uh, a, a shame-based society where because uh, everything we do is now public because of the Internet, with that comes shame and judgment from the culture, from our peers, from our followers, whatnot. I mean, think about it. If you were to take a picture of, of, of your grandchild or child or niece or nephew in your living room, before you post it, you will look more at the background than anything because you know that people who see it online will pay more attention to the background than they will your own child or grandchild. Why? Because we've become more of a shame culture. We've yet to say anything about cancel culture and everything else. So I think that we believe condemnation more than we do grace. 
Romans 8, really verse 1, but even leading up to it and, and following, flowing from it, is, is, is really, it brings both of those together. It, it speaks of condemnation, it speaks of grace, and we see the two together. Let's start with the presentation here in, in, here in verse 1. There is, in, in the first word in the Greek, is the word therefore. And you've heard me say this before, said I will say it until you are tired of saying it, and I will say it again. Every time when you're reading the Bible, you see the word therefore, you are to ask yourself, what is therefore, therefore? And therefore is therefore pointing us all the way back really to the previous seven chapters. Most notably chapter seven, we'll see, but we can really take it all the way back to chapter one. So let me give you just, just a simple uh, overview of what it is Paul has discussed. Romans is the most logical, uh, logically fluid book of the New Testament. It is written more like a, by a lawyer than, 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 than anything else. And so the first three chapters, Paul reminds us that all of us, every single one of us, no exceptions, are sinners. We are great sinners. In chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, Paul then directs us to Christ and shows us that Jesus is a great Savior. We are great sinners. He is a great Savior. And then in chapters 6 and 7, what he does is he says that that because grace is so profound and our deep is is so deep, and yet grace can can, can save us from that sin, the temptation is, is that when we turn to the Christian life, we can abuse grace in a number of ways. One way he describes in chapter 6 is a form of what we could call libertarianism. That is to say that if, if sin abounds here, grace will always abound greater than it. No matter how high the ceiling you think sin is in your life, grace is greater still. And the temptation then is to believe that what we need to do is to increase our sinning so that grace itself can abound. And Paul says that that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is that we die to sin, the things that did condemn us, and so that we are raised in Christ. Don't you remember your baptism? And in chapter 7, he talks about the opposite extreme. That is, those who come to Christ, sinners that we were, embrace the, the grace of God, and we then think the Christian life means we must follow the rules. And so we become bound by law and not grace. But Paul points out that the law, though given by God, is primarily a means of conviction by which we come empty-handed to Christ. We are guilty. All the law can do is condemn us. It is a poor option to save us. You've heard me give this illustration before. If, if you uh, are convicted of a crime, you stand before a judge. If you stood before the judge and said, oh, but judge, you don't understand. I've done all these wonderful things. The judge would say, that's great. I'm so glad you did all those wonderful things. But you're here on account of this one thing. And justice demands we deal with this one thing thing. So too it is with God. Keeping the law is a means of conviction because it reminds us we can't keep the law. It is not a means of salvation. And it is this latter context where, by which Paul gets quite personal. Go back with me to chapter 7 verse 15. Again, he's talking about the law, how it keeps reminding him he is guilty. He says, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Remember everything he said about sin in the first three chapters. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You see what he's saying there? He says, I have a pattern by which here is, here is the goals I set, the things I want to do. Usually that's not the things I end up accomplishing. There are things over here, sin, I would rather avoid but I give in anyways. He says, now, if the law could save, all I'd have to do is make out a list and says, this week I'm going to do these five things, and you'll just do them because that's a law. Sin cannot transform. It cannot save. It can only condemn. So here Paul is saying, look, I've come to realize I am a sinner. And he realizes he lives in this schizophrenic world. He, he's doing the things he doesn't, and he's not doing the things that he wants to do. And that's where he gets so schizophrenic there. Uh, you can go down to verse 25, um, or verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? With the mind he desires to pursue holiness? But with the flesh, he is weak. I was listening this week. One of the greatest, arguably the greatest Christian album of all time, G.C. Talks Jesus Freaks. And they have a, in, in, in the song In the Light, which they took from Charlie Peacock from the 70s or 80s. I love this line. This disease of self runs through my blood. It's a cancer fatal to my soul. Every attempt on my behalf has failed to bring the sickness under control. Tell me what is going on inside of me. I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a savior. So the law then reminds us of what we cannot do, not what we can do. So what we need then is something, or in the case of the gospel, someone more liberating. And this is why Paul confesses in verse 25. Remember, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer. That's the answer. And so now he can say, therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ. You see? You see, it's a, so I have before me the constant ringing of condemnation. I have before me the constant reminder that I am guilty and vile and helpless. We, what I need is true liberation. What I need is true redemption. What hope do I have? And Paul says there is Christ who has taken upon himself. That's the presentation. Notice in the prescience here also in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Notice there he, he mentions two things. First of all, the timing of grace. There is now no condemnation. Now, I, I, I did study Greek quite a bit. doesn't mean I really know what I'm doing, but I can make you think that I do. And I did a lot of study on this word now. Okay? I'm going to give you some real insight into what the Greek word noon means in, in, in Greek. Okay? Here's what it means. It means now. That's why throughout the New Testament, whenever it is used, it is translated now, present time, or in your King James, henceforth. It just means now. 
Let me give you a few examples, right? Matthew 27, Jesus on the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Luke chapter 2, remember Simeon, whenever he sees Jesus, he says he can die. Remember what he says? Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. When Jesus confronted the woman at the well, he says, you, you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Notice there, the word means now, at the present time, henceforth thou, right? It doesn't mean soon. It doesn't mean later. It doesn't mean when certain requirements are met first. It means now. It's even richer when we look at it in the book of Romans. And we, I won't take the time to look at all these references. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, he says we are now justified by his blood. In Romans chapter 5, verse 11, he speaks of us being now we have received reconciliation. In chapter 11, he says that we have now received mercy. Notice, justification, reconciliation, mercy is not something we attain, isn't something we strive for. It is something we receive now. And when you receive it now, you have it now. Isn't that the way that works? It's basic English. Now we, we have it. Notice there is now no condemnation, which means if you are in Christ, then the promises of Jesus and the hope of the gospel are yours now. We err when we forget this simple truth. When the accuser comes, and he comes often, we would do well to confess this to him and to ourselves. You're awful, he might say. You're terrible, he might remind us. If only people knew how you really were. If only people knew the thoughts that go through your head and, 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 and the things you've done privately. If only people would know who you truly are. Well, it's fine to say, you know what, accuser, you, you are right. What you say is true. In fact, I could probably add to that list. But there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not there used to be no condemnation. Not one day there will be no condemnation. There is now no condemnation. So you get the timing. Then notice the verdict. There is no condemnation. This Greek word Paul uses here is rare in the New Testament. It's used only three times, and all of it is in the book of Romans. Again, it's a very uh, lawyer-like book. It is a courtroom term. Paul's argument is that being found in Christ, though the law and the accuser, not to mention others, might shout guilty, the great judge declares us innocent. Now, the means by which there is no condemnation is nothing short of the blood of Jesus. Remember, this is a courtroom term. Word, which means if you are on trial and the judge says not guilty, nothing anyone says to you matters. Because the one with the authority to declare innocence or guilt has declared you are not guilty. Why then would you listen to the voice of anyone else? We do it all the time. If God as judge has declared us Innocent on account of the blood of Jesus, why then do we refuse to believe that we are now not under condemnation? Go back with me to chapter 6 of Romans, if, if you will. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, go down to verse 6. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved. Um, I'm sorry, chapter five. I knew that wasn't right. Chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were, notice past tense, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, and remember, you see, therefore is therefore, right? You can go back to the previous verse. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I wish we had time just to spend some time on this, but notice some of the, the root words here. The, the words like justified now, reconciled now, rejoice now. In fact, you can go to chapter 5, verse 1. Notice the language there. Since we have been justified by faith, which we just read about, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So in the sing singular chapter, in these first 11 verses, we are given the promise that because by the blood of Jesus, we have peace we are justified, we are not condemned, we are reconciled, and we therefore rejoice. Now, now, and that is a promise that is ours, that becomes our identity. So anytime we are burdened with endless anxiety, constant doubts, and fear, it is because we have forgotten the simple gospel truth that there is now no condemnation in Christ. This is consistent with everything else you see in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of that light. John writes in his first epistle, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Isn't that good news? There is now, now, no condemnation. And once you are condemned not guilty, you can never be found guilty for that. This is why we speak of three tenses of salvation. I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. And I will be saved from sin's presence. Finally, let us look at the presence. We looked at the presentation, the presence, now the presence. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. With shame culture comes condemnation. The only way to escape shame culture and cancel culture that is its cousin is to be part of the right tribe. This is the advantage of intersectionality. So long as you check enough boxes and you're popular enough in pop culture, you should be safe. The problem is, is that godless cancel culture is always changing. That's why that comedians are always apologizing, not for their newest special, but for their special 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. Movies have to, shows that every show is being remade, except for some because you can't update it. 
Celebrities famous yesterday are unacceptable today. Tweets ignored 10 years ago will now get you fired today. So hiding in a safe system or believing you are in some sort of secure cultural tribe will not in the end protect you. The good news of the gospel is, however, that those who are in Christ are secure and free. Secure and free. Think about it. If God in Christ has declared you that there is no condemnation, why would you give five seconds to anyone else's condemnation, including your own? Why would you do that? You really think there your opinion matters more than the maker of the heavens and earth? Why do we do that? In the gospel, we are secure and free. We can either trust our ancestry, our racial identity, our upbringing, our voting block, or our sexual identity, or we can trust in the one risen from the dead. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are described as being in Christ, with Christ, or through Christ. And I would actually recommend to you to to read through the New Testament highlighting that. You can start with Ephesians 1 if, if you want a simple homework assignment. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we are created in Christ. In Galatians 2, we are crucified with Christ. Colossians 2, we are buried with Christ. In Romans 6, we are baptized into Christ in his death. In Romans 6, you are united with him in his resurrection. Ephesians 2, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's two chapters in the New Testament. Furthermore, in Christ, we are told to be justified, Romans 8, 1, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, glorified, Romans 8, 30, called, Romans 1, 9, made alive, Ephesians 2, 5, created anew, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, adopted, Galatians 3, 26, and elected, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. All of those things, the Bible tells us, are in Christ. So in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, we are given security and liberty. In fact, you can read through the rest of chapter 8 of Romans, and you'll see this pattern. For example, in verses 2 to 8 of chapter 8, we see that in Christ we have peace. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. It says, For to set the mind on the things of this... Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Likewise, in Christ, we, we, we share in his resurrection. Go down to verse 10 and 11. It says, but if Christ is in you, notice the language of unity there, Christ in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of the righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see the unity? Security. Freedom. Peace, life. Chapter 14 to 17, or verse 14 to 17, we see that in Christ we have adoption. Go down to verse 16. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Furthermore, we see in verses 18 to 25, it is that we, we, we get his peace, we get his adoption, we get his life, and we also get strength. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Not hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In this hope. What hope in Christ and his gospel? This is good news. 
Because sexual identity will never provide this. Politicians can never accomplish this. And moralism of the day, as fickle as it might be, is simply too weak. Isn't this why we sing? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When Marcus Aurelius was Caesar, emperor of Rome. He declared Christianity empire-wide to be illegal. Thus, what comes from what is considered the wisest of the Roman emperors was one of the worst persecution of Christians. It was in the mid-2nd century, and so persecution broke out. And in one city in particular was Vienna. Persecution was quite fierce. There was a man there by the name of Sanctus. He was a deacon of a local church who was arrested and put on trial. He would not give any details about his life or anything. Every time he was asked a question, he would simply state, I am a Christian. Ask his name, I am a Christian. His origin, I am a Christian. His vocation, I am a Christian. Is he guilty? I am a Christian. They couldn't get anything else out of him, so they led him to be tortured and eventually executed. Early church historian Eusebius has reserved for us much of what we know about the early church, writing in the 4th century after Constantine becomes emperor and is converted. What he has to say about Sanctus, I absolutely love. Sanctus, too, endured all cruelty with superhuman courage. Although the wicked applied persistent tortures to wring something from him, he resisted with such tenacity that he did not even tell them his own name, race, city of origin, or whether he was slave or free, but replied to every question in Latin with, I am a Christian. Therefore, the governor and the torturers were eager to master him. And when all else failed, they finally pressed hot, red-hot plates of brass against the most tender parts of his body. These were burning, he says. But he remained steadfast in his confession, refreshed by the water of life that flows from Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? The... The early Christians, and even now, Christians around the world right now can face horrendous torture, pressure, persecution, even death. All the while proclaiming, I am Christ's. I am hidden in Him. Yet for some reason, Christians in America, we struggle to believe it. 
Will you believe it? There is now no condemnation if you're in Christ. When you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror. Will you remind yourself? There is no condemnation in Christ. When you waste too much time on social media and condemnation floods in, will you remind yourself? There is no condemnation in Christ. When the world gets uglier, our lives get more complicated, will you remind yourself? There is no condemnation in Christ. And right now, when you look into your heart as vile and wicked as it is, Will you look to Christ and conclude with Paul? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I am a Christian. Let's pray.